I'm Carlton Owen, immediate past president and CEO of the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities and a proud supporter of Keeping Forest. Keeping Forest is the producer of this podcast called How the River Flows. Keeping Forest is built on a powerful and simple idea to ensure that our region's forests have a future. We're working hard to conserve the 245 million acres of existing forests by supporting private landowners, shedding light on why this land matters, and showing what you can do to help. Every episode of How the River Flows will take a close look at the relationship between healthy forests and clean drinking water. Our experts will share their best ideas along with specific examples about conserving local forests to ensure a lasting, clean supply of drinking water to meet local needs. Each time, we'll bring you a new take on how landowners can be compensated for the tremendous environmental value that their working forests provide to everyone. You'll learn how these innovations are financed, managed, and even how your local community can join the effort in protecting our precious southern forests and the many benefits, including clean water, that they provide. So sit back and enjoy this episode of How the River Flows. Hi, I'm Robert Ferris, Ecosystem Services Program Manager for the Georgia Forestry Foundation and former Director of the Georgia Forestry Commission. In this episode of How the River Flows, we'll be covering the links between forest and water protection fees. Two topics that might not seem like they have a lot in common. My guest today is Raven Lawson. Raven is literally a rock star in the world of forest and water connections. Raven Lawson is the Watershed Protection Manager of Central Arkansas Water. She's responsible for protecting and managing nearly 25,000 acres of watershed land and water resources owned by the utility. Raven, welcome to the podcast. I'm really honored to have you join us today. Thank you so much, Robert, and thank you so much for that warm welcome and introduction. I hope that uh, I can live up to it. (laughs) I'm sure you will. Central Arkansas Water has been in the news a lot this past year. Central Arkansas Water is the first in the world with certified green bond to protect drinking watershed for water quality. Central Water Arkansas Water has been the recipient of uh, three top national distinctions this past year. The One Water Alliance inaugural accelerator, utility of the future today, partnership for safe water. Wow. What has been a really challenging 2020 sure hadn't slowed y'all down. No, we took 2020 in stride and made the best of it. Now, it's it's an honor to work for such a great organization. Well, I think a, a great place to start today, Raven, is, is if you could tell us a little bit about Central Arkansas Water and what your responsibilities are as a watershed protection manager. So Central Arkansas Water is the largest water utility in the state of Arkansas. We serve approximately one in six Arkansans, about a half million people. And we're centered in the capital city of Little Rock with an expanding territory in the surrounding counties. As the Watershed Protection Manager, it's my job to manage a crew of people and a program that is designed to protect the landscape around our source water lakes. So that's where all these half million people get their water in their homes and in their hospitals and schools and businesses from. And just to tell you a little bit about what a watershed even is, and I realize that that's a foreign concept to a lot of people, but a watershed, if you imagine you're hiking up to the top of a mountain, right, and you look across the landscape and you look down at a lake below, 
all of those ridgelines that you see surrounding that body of water make up that watershed. And so when the rain comes down and hits the tops of those mountains, the rain either goes down towards that lake or it goes off the backside of the mountains. And sometimes that area is a very large area. For instance, one of our reservoirs is Lake Maumelle, and the watershed is 88,000 acres, and that reservoir is 8,900 acres. So we're not just talking about the shorelines or a few properties that we own. It's really our job as the watershed protectors to keep an eye on what's going on on that entire landscape and do what we can to preserve it into the future so that it protects that drinking water supply. We're not in the business of building dams anymore in the United States. So getting more water supplies is few and far between. And so we have to protect the ones that we have, especially our surface water supplies. Great explanation. So uh, I guess in my simpler terms, a watershed's a lot bigger than the pond you're drawing it from, huh? A lot, a lot. (laughs) Great. Well, while we're talking about terms, my title is Ecosystems Services Program Manager. What does Ecosystem Services mean to you? Man, that's a great question. (laughs) So ecosystem services, really we're talking about any of those tangible and intangible things that we can get from our natural resources. So everything from our wooden fiber products, medicines that are derived from plants in our forest, to aesthetic beauty, woodland retreats, hiking and recreation, and everything in between. What we really look into, though, are those ecosystem services provided by like carbon capture and soil retention and those types of things that really affect water supplies. And so ecosystem services hit all over the map, but it's how we as humans benefit from our natural resources and the surrounding nature. Great. Very parallel uh, thoughts to mine. In, in a nutshell, I think of ecosystem services outside of those uh, wood fiber products that go into thousands of products. But in a nutshell, I just think ecosystem services from our forest is what builds our human health and well-being. Absolutely. Absolutely. Quite simply. I know we could talk about that for probably the next 20 minutes, all the different services. But oh, yeah. That's not what we're here <laughs> for. Sure. So kind of. Jump into uh, a while back, y'all initiated an innovative program establishing watershed protection fees or source water protection fees with the utility. Could you tell us a little bit about that program? Yeah, so our watershed protection program, which is what I lead up, was derived from our watershed protection planning process, which happened in 2000. Five, six, seven, and our watershed protection plan was adopted by our board of commissioners in 2007. And so that really was the kickoff of what we're doing today. But in that plan, one of our tasks was outlined as one of our goals was to purchase, for lack of a better term, mitigation properties to offset legacy landowners in the watershed and any development that they may do on their existing properties by ways of what we call impervious surfaces. So those hardscape surfaces that water does not go through, but rather runs off. So think about rooftops and roads and driveways, barns and sheds, things like that, things that 
make the water not recapture into the ground. So our plan said that we needed to purchase approximately 1,500 acres in order to offset those types of development that may happen on those existing lands. And what we didn't have in place, though, was a way to fund that. And so a group of citizens from Little Rock who were very instrumental in the development of that plan as part of the policy advisory committee got with both of the cities of Little Rock and North Little Rock, neighborhood associations and local organizations, and came to us to actually ask how we planned to pay for that 1,500 acres and manage it. And quite honestly, we didn't have a good answer, (laughs) but they had a solution ready for us. They said, well, why don't you charge us the end users for the protection and the longevity of the use of that water source? And they proposed a fee. At the time, this was 2008, you know, the housing market had just crashed. The economy was tanking. It was a really hard time, much like it is today with the pandemic, on families and their pocketbooks and where money was going to come from. And there was some discussion about how we would structure such a fee during those hard times. And it was proposed to us to just not cut into a family's dollar. And so someone suggested the best way to do that is to keep it below 50 cents because that's when you start really cutting into a dollar. And so we implemented a 45 cent per meter per month fee across our distribution area. And that fee originally produced about a million dollars a year for purchases of those properties. Wow, that's that's another big wow. So y'all have been working at this quite a while, 17 plus years. For a little while, yeah. That's pretty neat. And the fact that it sounds like you're saying this was citizen-driven. It was. So y'all came up with the source water protection plan, put that out there, and citizens actually came back to you. Yeah, that was really because of the way we structured the development of that watershed management plan. It was very stakeholder-centered, very both technical and policy-driven. We actually had two different groups of people. We had a policy advisory committee and a technical advisory committee. So it brought forth the the best and most interested parties, both in agency perspectives that had the expertise, but also in citizens who were looking out for the best interests of the community. And so having those different types of groups and organizations from the front end really was the key into making all of this successful you know, almost 15 years later. Great points for others to heed that advice. And uh, I picked up something else you said, a uh, hard time. So is is that our cue here? <laughs> We're going through some pretty difficult times. Does that mean now is the time to start in other communities with similar projects? <laughs> Possibly. It, it could really be. because, and, and I think the pandemic has set up really a different mindset in your typical American. You know, we've all slowed down. We've been encouraged to get out and enjoy the outdoors. And I think a lot of people are getting that reconnection with our natural resources. And it may be a perfect time to capitalize on that connection with our families and teach 
our families where their water comes from, where their house building materials come from, and and the things that we use every day, and and get back to the root of that, and you know, giving citizens a charge to do something about it may seem a little out of reach, but something as simple as saying, you know, you can do a monthly fee just tacked onto your water bill, and that is what is going to protect these resources. This actually may be a perfect time to tap into that. On the other side, the economic side of that, things like loans and bonds are at bottom interest rates. The interest rates are at the bottom floor right now. And so for utilities looking to capitalize on investment opportunities, this is a very good time to look into those options as well. Wow. Great, great advice, Raven. A lot of arrows pointing in the the right direction for us. You said something about outreach and and education. What kind of outreach and education did y'all do? I know you talked about the uh, stakeholder groups and diverse stakeholder groups, but what else can you tell us beyond that? Oh, yeah, the very diverse stakeholder groups, yes. But daily interaction, we've seen a difference in the way people communicate in the last 10 years. Obviously, social media is a big influence on that. Being in front of a computer every day is a big influence on that. The shift from in-person meetings to webinars and things like that is really being embraced in our culture. And so we not only diversify our stakeholder groups, but we also diversify the way we communicate to the general public and to other utilities and organizations. And to that point, we actually, as a water utility, hired a social media specialist, a person specifically tackled on the day-to-day to really harness those educational opportunities throughout our utility and distribute not only that, but important messaging to our communities through all the different social media means. And that has really accelerated us forward, not only in communicating about watershed protection, but just communicating about what a water utility does on a day-to-day basis. I think a lot of folks don't understand all of the work that goes into keeping all those thousands and thousands of miles of pipe under the ground operating and keeping that water flowing through your faucets. Great. That's an important point as well, especially for uh, an old technically inept forester like me who has to get my kids to show me how to face tweet and all that good stuff. (laughs) But that's uh, to your point there too. That's exactly what we're trying to do with this podcast. Utilize social media to get the word out and spread the message. Yeah. So, Where do you stand now? You started with 1,500 acres, and I know y'all are managing 25,000 acres now. Is that the right figure? Yeah, so it's edging up on 25,000 acres, and that is both our land and water. And remember, I said we had two reservoirs, so that's two uh, lake surface areas and then the surrounding lands that we own. For the Lake Maumel watershed specifically, since that fee was put into place, we have purchased almost 10,000 acres with the fee. Now, we recently graduated that fee up and doubled it. So we now, as of January 1st, 2021, uh, we've officially doubled the fee, but we did not touch that fee for more than 10 years. 12, 13 years, actually. And over the last 18 months, we ticked it up 15 cents every six months until we were able to double that fee. So at present day, 
we're expecting about a $2 million per year accumulation on our funds. And we're looking at unique ways in which to expand that and leverage those dollars to make bigger purchases and make bigger impacts on our watershed protection efforts. And I think that's a good segue to the green bond talk, but that is where we've been able to go with that. So started out with that $1 million to $2 million, but it does sound like a lot to probably the average listener on this podcast, you know, a million or $2 million is a lot of money. But when you're talking about buying acreage and forested acres on the outside edges of a capital city of a state, a million dollars doesn't go very far. So we have to take that into account and we have to use those dollars the best we can. You mentioned the green bond and the claim of the world's first. Is it $30.6 million, I think I saw, total? And tell us about the green bond. So, yeah, that is the total amount of the green bond. Not all of that is on the watershed protection end. But the watershed protection aspect is what allowed us entry into that green bond world. So, yes, we are the first in the world to get a certified green bond for landscape protection under the water infrastructure criteria. That's a lot (laughs) of caveats into that world's first, but it's a great step in the right direction. And it's going to give a lot of other utilities leverage in the future because it really crossed over and brought in both green infrastructure and gray infrastructure sides, which is really critical in a utility world. And so the part of the bond that is going to watershed protection is really leveraged with that $2 million per year pot that we have. And so we were able to commit funding from our dedicated fee and leverage that on $6 million of that bond. And so if we didn't have that dedicated fee in order to repay that bond, we would not even be eligible for it. And so while the, the green bond is really big, only a small portion of that actually goes back to watershed protection and it's because of our dedicated fee. Okay. As a forester, I've got to ask this question. You've got this forest land out there to protect your source water. So what do y'all do with that? You just put a fence around it and leave it? <laughs> leave it leave and forget it. 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 No, absolutely not. <laughs> That's what a lot of people think that forest land preservation and conservation means. But especially us in the Southeast, our forests are historically adapted to fire regime. And our forests of the past don't look anything like our forests currently. We actually have a forest surplus in Arkansas currently and have more forest lands than we've ever had. The forests are more densely packed and there's just, the makeup of the forest is completely different. And that's because of uh, suppression and human influence. So we have kept the forest from being able to be the way that they used to be. I've seen photos in Arkansas and read accounts of early mappers and explorers and botanists in Arkansas who tell tale of being able to drive horse-drawn wagons through the thickest forests in Arkansas. And if you've been in any forest in the Southeast, you know you can't really walk 
off a trail without being wrapped up in something these days, let alone drive a a horse-drawn wagon through. So what we really have to do is get back to getting those forests functioning the way they should. Right now, they're overgrown. They have lots of invasive species. The canopy cover shadows out the forest floor, and none of those things do us really any good. So we do actively manage our forest landscapes. We're still new to the game. We're really dipping our toes in and and getting some good footing. We're currently working on an SFI certification for our forest lands, but we do participate in prescribed fire and ecological timber thinning across our forest. And this is why it matters to a water utility. So when those leaves accumulate on the forest floor year after year, and those canopies close in and create those, you know, dark, dense forest that we're used to seeing, that leaf litter and dead matter that accumulates on the forest floor can actually cause issues in our treatment process. Those carbons enter our water system and they don't break down properly. And when we go to treat that water, the chlorines and things like that that we use to treat the water can bind with those carbons and create what the EPA is termed as disinfection byproducts. In the short term, we call it DBP. So these disinfection byproducts are a result of those carbon molecules, that decaying material accumulating in the water. I don't want to scare anybody (laughs) because we have multiple ways of remedying this in the treatment process. We have a multi-barrier approach that was developed by the EPA that starts at the landscape with prevention, but then there's four or five steps in that process that ensure public health. So I don't want people to think that a forest is a bad thing, but it is one of the first things that we have to combat in the treatment process. So when we come in with fire, we burn that material off of the forest floor We get those nutrients back into the soil where it should be, and we put a breath of fresh air back into our soilscapes, right? And so, and then we come in and we do ecological timber thinning, where we take out very specific trees on the landscape. This allows us to get out any trees that are already dying or diseased or insect infested, but also take out some big timber trees that will help us open up the canopy. So, you know, we all learned in the fifth grade the the things that plants need in order to grow, and those are sunlight, water, and nutrients. And proper forest management gives us all of those things back to allow those forest floor plants to grow. And from a water quality perspective, the more root systems that we can get growing in our forest, the better filtration that we have of water running off the landscape before it accumulates into our source water. And so what our goal is, is to get enough sunlight to the forest floor, have big healthy trees, and have native understory vegetation grow up because those native plants have root systems that are 5 to 15 foot deep on average, whereas if you go out to your grass and your lawn and you pick it up, it may be an inch at most. And the more root systems we have and the more native plants we have, the better chance we have of capturing unwanted pollutants because those plants can uptake those 
and use those to grow, but it also slows down our water across our landscape and our forests act as our first filter in that water treatment process. Oh, Raven, you've stolen my heart. <laughs> so what you're saying is a working managed forest is a healthy forest. It is. A healthy forest equals healthy water. Bingo. I love it. Love it. Some great, great comments there and a, a super quick forest management uh, lesson there. So <laughs> the work on the, the private forest surrounding these watersheds and in these watersheds that landowners are managing in the manner you're speaking of are actually benefiting source waters across the South. So most definitely. That's great to hear that y'all are doing that prescribed burning and harvesting and everything to keep that forest healthy. Those of us in the forestry profession know what happens when you don't. And it's not it's not pretty, not not a good thing. So great to hear there. And so do you create a revenue stream off the the harvest on the forest? Does that help with the water protection program? Definitely we can. Our goal in harvesting is really ecological based. And so when and I had a meeting with a contract forester and logger just two weeks ago and I told them at the end of our site meeting, I said, at the end of the day, our goal is to promote the health of the forest. I said, if we can pay for doing this operation by what we sell, then I see this as a win. So as long as we're not going into the red with our forest management, it's going to be a win on our books. Any money that we make above and beyond that goes right back into that watershed protection fee pot. And one thing I haven't said yet is that watershed protection fee pot that we have is a dedicated fund that no one else in the utility can touch. It is solely earmarked for purchasing and conserving the lands that we purchase. So that's exactly what it's for. So far, we've never lost money on a harvest, but we do take the little bit of excess revenue that we do get and put that back into the fee. So that's on top of that million, $2 million that we collect every year. It doesn't produce a lot of income for us just because of the way in which we harvest because we're very conservative. You know, our, our main goal is just to get the forest opened up just enough to provide us with those other ecosystem services that we talked about. But at the end of the day, it does create another revenue stream for us. That's good to hear as well. And you make another very valid point that properly managing your forest land, is it's not a cheap proposition. It's not free. There's a cost and expense involved in uh, thinning operations and pre-commercial thins, prescribed burning, doing all the things you need to be doing to manage and keep that healthy forest. Yeah, and people don't think about all that goes into that. I mean, you have to have operators of big machines. You've got to move those big machines. You've got to keep them operating and keep them operating at their tip-top shape so that they don't put destruction on the landscape. I will say that even in the most conservative thinning operations, it's not a pretty process on the front end. It can get a little mucky, but it's a very short-term issue for a greater ecological gain. And so that's, we try really hard to educate when we do start a thinning, especially if it's near a neighborhood or a, a busy road or something like that, that I always tell people when they give me a phone call, I'm like, give us six months 
Now wait till those native wildflowers start popping up underneath those forests and tell me how much better that that area looks in just a few months. And I don't get any return phone calls. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love to go out and look at the forest after it's been prescribed burn. And two or three weeks later, all the green starts popping up and you see all the deer and the animals out there. Their fortune is is wonderful. And again, you, you brought up some challenges. There's a U.S. Forest Service report that projects the loss of up to 23 million acres of forest land across the South by 2060. And to your point, somehow we've got to make sure we can maintain the economic viability of that forest land owner to continue to own and manage those forest lands. So good points. I better stop talking forestry and get back on your water projection program here. (laughs) What kind of hurdles did you have in establishing your water protection fees? And great to hear the citizens brought forward. Uh, any advice on on others interested in pursuing that path and challenges in particular, how you overcame those challenges? Yeah. So, um, and as I mentioned earlier, we didn't have really a lot of pushback on instituting the fee that we thought we would. So that was a big plus. And again, that really went back into involving those critical stakeholders and those people who had loud voices in their communities from the beginning and really educating them. We did have some pushback with some of the other parts of the plan, though. Some of the other parts of the plan suggested, well, let me back up for a second. The reason we went into this watershed protection planning process to begin with was because of the threat of development and the expanding city limits creeping towards the watershed year after year. And so large housing developments were platted and planned for right along the lake. Any land that we didn't own was already in that process of planning. So again, we capitalized on that housing market dip and inserted ourselves and we had a fund and we were able to actually, you know, pay those developers in times when they couldn't develop and that allowed us to get in there. But with the plan came some suggestions on how to safely develop or and limit development and put in development best management practices over time. And So we did get a lot of pushback from private landowners in the area that felt like that would hurt their property value. You know, limiting activity, limiting lot size, limiting further subdivision and things like that. But (laughs) I talked to a realtor just a couple of days ago, and again, the times have changed. And in this pandemic, People are wanting to move to places that are bigger landscapes, more surrounded by trees, have more acreage and less development on them. They're looking to suburbia and inner city, reconnect with nature. They're looking to separate from housing situations. And so what we're actually seeing is an increase in those protected landscape property values. So... I think we've gotten lucky. Honestly, we've gotten lucky, but it has worked out in the end. And the county, the county judge was a big 
player in our watershed protection planning process. And they did adopt development codes and regulations that does put all of those restrictions that were suggested in the plan in place for this particular area of the county. We've had some uh, similar discussions here in Georgia about the, uh, well, urban flight moving out. Mm -hmm. So with the water source protection fees and any revenues coming off the land, what type of organizational structure is there? uh, Do you as the watershed protection manager have, you just put the funds wherever you want or is there some structure there? (laughs) I will admit in the early days of us having this fee, it was really geared toward that little line that said we needed that 1500 acres. And so it was, we need to buy 1,500 acres, what's available? And there was a little haphazardness at the beginning. But as our program developed, and our program's gone through several stages, and we're kind of through the engineering phase and the policy phase, each with different watershed protection managers that had expertise in those. And now we've moved into the science and conservation phase. That's where I come in, and that's my background. And we realized that we had had a good opportunity to be a lot more strategic in our land purchases. We had met and surpassed our 1,500-acre goal, and it was time to decide if we wanted to disband the fee because we had met our goal or if we wanted to look at what the future might hold. And so... Part of that strategy was really looking comprehensively at our watershed holistically and looking at the map of the lands that we already owned and what areas would give us the biggest bang for our buck if we could protect them in the long term. So some of those things rose to the surface very naturally. So from a conservation perspective, you're thinking, well, you know, you have a reservoir, so you have a dammed river that creates this lake. So protecting the water that runs from that river into the lake is important. And so protecting those lands around that, what we call a tributary around that river is important. And then we looked at our major tributaries that drop in to the reservoir at different points and determined how influential they would be to water quality. If, you know, say a a strip mall or, uh, you know, a factory or something was built right next to one of our creeks and put all this impervious surface out there, you know, would that impact the water quality in that area? And so we were able to look at our tributaries, identify important protection areas, and then keep growing that out from there. The other piece that we look at is how developable a piece of land is. And so, We look at, you know, things like, are there paved roads to it? Is there already electric and water services to those properties? Or are they landlocked by land that's already protected by us? You know, that's two different types of development that would go on there. And so those more developable properties would potentially be a greater threat to us in the future. And so then we started looking at those areas. Makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. What do you think or foresee as your biggest challenges? You talked about some of them there and how you're looking out, but just from your personal perspective, 
What do you see as the biggest challenges to your program and operations, let's just say, in the near future, the next 10, next 30 years? Well, I see a lot of amazing things on the 30-year horizon. I think our biggest challenges are going to be in our 10-year forecast. And I think, I'm afraid of, uh, what's that Southern saying, outgrowing our britches. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, getting too big for our britches. We have some great opportunities to really expand our land holdings with the green bond and some other things that we're looking at, some carbon markets and things like that. We're going to be able to purchase larger tracts of land. The challenge is going to be keeping up with the management of those lands and funding the staff resources in which to do that. So it is going to be truly operational. Those are going to be our bigger challenges, just making sure that we have enough staff in order to truly protect that landscape and keep it managed. In prior discussions, you spoke with our group over on the Oconee River a a year or so ago and talked about lingo and you as a natural resource professional and, you know, within the water authority, water utility world, there's green structure, gray structure, lingo in the forestry community. We've got our own terms, basal area, trees, et cetera. Do you have any uh, recommendations or advice about how we communicate? I mean, you're there in a position that you are daily communicating regularly with the utility, but for the rest of us out here, how does the forestry community best communicate with the water world? Oh, that's a great question. And you talked about lingo right on the beginning. And I think the understanding that we come from a very much more public side of conservation and forest management and just working through the lingo with us, uh, we are going to use terms a little bit differently. We're going to stick to the science and maybe softer terms. We are very particular about, in, in Arkansas, we've pretty much adopted that with our collaborative that we have for forest and drinking water, but we really capture prescribed fire as a term that we used instead of controlled burn or some other terms that are used. Ecological timber thinning, because that really puts the science behind it, that puts that ecology term with that. And so, And that's critical specifically for where we are because we are surrounded by lots of traditional timberlands. And so when we use the terms harvest or timbering, a lot of our citizens have like mass destruction photos in their head. You know, they're looking at those big clear cuts. And when they know that we're coming at this from a protection angle and we're trying to do what's right for the water quality, those terms, even though they're the same operationally, really seem distant when you're using hard terms like harvest and then trying to protect the water. And so when we actually put that ecological timber thinning to that term, that puts a different picture in their heads. They're like, okay, there's ecology in there. They're working toward some kind of harmony with nature and then thinning. So they're not taking out all the trees. They're, they're doing something strategic here. And that's a good part of that. From the forestry perspective and what we found with working with that collaborative that I mentioned, the Arkansas Forest and Drinking Water Collaborative, we meet about quarterly and meet in person when it's, and there's not a pandemic. 
pretty regularly and have a biannual meeting that we go out and actually walk through the forest and walk through a thinning operation. And we get to talk about how we look at things different because the water quality protection benefits and measures that a forester take are traditionally held in protecting water sources for endangered species or for ecosystem health of the immediate water body. So like the streams or lakes or, or what have you. And so they're putting big trees across stream crossings and leaving slash on the ground to capture sediment and things like that. And while all of those things are good for water quality and they are very good for those immediate systems in the long term, when you're specifically talking about drinking water, this goes back to that decaying carbon that I talked about earlier. Those things are things that we have to really take into consideration and remedy. So we may suggest, you know, keeping an eye on that slash and possibly burning it off before it really starts to decay or looking at placement of some of these things. All the same practices that are already being done, just looking at them a little more strategically, knowing that our end goal is that treated water and the public health of the citizens and not just the health of the immediate system. Great. So finding common ground and maybe tweaking a little bit to yeah. cover multiple objectives. And you mentioned field trips. Uh, we've, we've found that as well, that nothing communicates as well as actually being out there, seeing it, touching it, feeling it, and understanding comes a lot better with the actual trip to the woods. So For sure. Great to hear. And I love that the word term you used, uh, science and softer terms. <laughs> I'm going to put that in my back pocket if you don't mind. No problem. But, you know, I know that a lot of listeners are probably thinking in this day and age, science and softer terms aren't <laughs> what we think of hand in hand. You know, science is usually pretty abrasive when we're communicating, but it's not. And people are a lot more educated about these topics than we think. And I do think there is a softer side to science in using the right terminology. Absolutely. And sticking to the strong science, but conveying it yes. and communicating it. It's a great point. Let's see. Uh, we've been around the world pretty, pretty, pretty well right here. Uh, let me ask you this. What do your uh, neighboring water utilities think about all the great work you've done at Central Arkansas Water? Uh, Get any feedback from them? All the time. <laughs> yeah. I've actually told one local water utility that I was going to have to start charging an hourly rate <laughs> for the phone call. <laughs> no, I, I kid. But no, it, it's, it's great. It's being very much looked at on a large scale. There are no trade secrets in public health and in water utilities. And I mentioned this before that, you know, we're not a grocery store. We're not a chain, so to speak. We aren't expanding. We're not creating a monopoly across the board. And we only can serve so many people with the water that we have. And our territory can only be so big. And so it does us no good to keep the good things that we're doing to ourselves because the neighboring water utility backs right up to us on every side. You know, those territories... While we do expand, they rarely change, and they're going to be getting their water from somewhere else. 
And the utmost importance here is the protection of public health and ensuring safe and reliable and affordable water to our residents. And so we are very open with the good things that we do. And we try our best to expand that knowledge throughout the industry on both a local, state, and national scale. We've got one thing we haven't talked about. (laughs) We have a dog on staff that sniffs out um, water leaks in our system. And so, and we were the first in the United States to have one of these. And now that we've got a trained paid dog on staff, other utilities are also looking at that as well. And so the other area local utilities are definitely looking at us to be an industry leader. And we're trying to set the best example and give them the best things to work with. We do have a unique situation in which we are the sole owners of our water sources. They were both built only for the purpose of being water supplies. That does give us a little bit of a leg up in the game, but we try to be as adaptable in setting up a model as we can. And so just because your local water utility doesn't own your resource doesn't mean that there's not something that they can do to further the protection of those resources. You've just got to figure out which puzzle pieces fit together. Raven, for other communities that are interested in pursuing programs similar to to what y'all have done, do you have any uh, advice on how they might best get started? Definitely. Reach out to your local decision makers and the people that support them. Reach out to the uh, civic organizations in your communities. Those people who have, like I said earlier, loud voices that are really understood by the citizens or who represent larger pieces of the population. Influential groups for us in the watershed protection planning process were like the Association of Neighborhoods, Audubon, Arkansas, our local county judges, and then of course our state agency representatives and things like that. So, you know, really be strategic in who you bring to the table in those early conversations. Be diverse and make sure that they capture the population that you're serving. That's really critical. And I think that that's where a lot of utilities can do different, is really capturing in any decision-making that you do, looking at the population that you serve and trying to mimic that. And that goes for, you know, them making up boards and putting employees into place too. But when you're really trying to make those connections to citizens of what you're doing and why it's important, it is really critical to have all those different players at the table. Thank you. Great advice. Thank you to Raven Lawson for joining us this episode. This is Robert Ferris of the Georgia Forestry Foundation for Keeping Forest, a diverse coalition conserving the natural, economic, and cultural value of Southern forest. The music in the podcast is by Chuck Lavelle. I want to thank everyone for tuning into How the River Flows. 
Join us next time as we explore the connections between healthy forests and clean water and see how others have built a partnership that benefits all. You can listen to How the River Flows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Carlton Owen.